I'm happy to be with you again in your study of Luke's Gospel. This week's lesson includes some of the best-known parables in the Bible. Jesus made brilliant use of parables in his teaching, but he didn't invent them. The parable was a widely used literary form throughout the Mediterranean world. Writers, philosophers, and politicians in classical Greece and Rome used parables. They were common in the Jewish world as well. They are found in the oldest books of the Old Testament and were used by rabbis who were contemporaries of Jesus. M.J. LaGrange wrote early in the 20th century that a parable is written to strike the imagination, to pique the curiosity, to make the listener reflect and work to arrive at the meaning so that the lesson will be more deeply engraved on the mind. Each time we read a parable, there's a good chance we will be surprised by something in it. In the parable of the banquet in chapter 14, Jesus shows the poor and humble being richly rewarded and calls for attitudes of openness and generosity. He addresses the guests first and explains about true humility. Then he addresses the host. Both messages are countercultural. Jesus knows the Jewish social customs and the human desire to be first, to get ahead. The host in this story was probably guilty of being a social climber. Having the great miracle worker named Jesus as a dinner guest would have been a way for the host to impress his neighbors. But Jesus sees the lack of charity of the host and teaches the true spirit of hospitality. He tells the host that he should invite people who cannot repay him in any way. This parable calls us to check our motives. We can give out of self-interest or to feel superior like the host. But Jesus says that the only real giving is the kind that flows out of loving. In a way, this kind of giving is uncontrollable. We do it because love compels us to. The last section of the banquet scene holds a very important teaching which would have shocked Jesus' listeners. One of their expectations was the messianic banquet. According to legend, when Yahweh sent the Messiah, the mythical monster of chaos would be captured and served as the main course. As with most legends, it was a poetic way of saying there will come a time when God will destroy evil and suffering. A guest says to Jesus in verse 15, Blessed is the one who will dine in the kingdom of God. The guest is referring to this long-awaited messianic banquet, and he is thinking of Jews, and only righteous Jews, as the dinner guests. Jesus is ready with a parable. The master stands for God. The original invited guests symbolize the Jews. In their superiority and orthodoxy, they cannot welcome or accept Jesus. They are excluded because they all let work, possessions, and family come first. The people invited from here and yon stand for the tax collectors, sinners, and the Gentiles for whom there is still plenty of room at the banquet. Jesus had every intention of destroying death, but not in the mythical, explosive way the Jewish leaders envisioned. Jesus tells the three parables in chapter 15 in response to the grumbling of the Pharisees and scribes who are now watching him very closely. 
Jesus is speaking to people who are considered outcasts by the Pharisees, the very tax collectors and sinners that accepted the invitation to the feast in the earlier parable. Tax collectors were hated for collaborating with the Roman government and for making a living by inflating taxes. We can well imagine hating them ourselves. And sinners referred not only to people who broke the moral laws, but to those who failed to uphold the ritual purity practiced by the Pharisees. Given the importance of these laws in biblical cultures, it is no wonder the Pharisees are scandalized. They take great offense when Jesus associates with sinners and treats them graciously. In answer to the Pharisees' complaints and charges, Jesus again responds with a parable drawn from everyday life. Just like a shepherd with lost sheep would do, God seeks out all who are lost. Shepherds normally counted their sheep at the end of the day to make sure they were all there. Sheep, by nature, are very social, and isolated sheep would quickly become frantic, and so would the shepherd. The shepherd represents God, and his grief and anxiety are restored to joy when he finds the lost sheep and returns it to the fold. The woman who lost the coin might have been facing economic disaster since one coin could have represented a full day's work for her husband. The couple would suffer greatly from such a loss. Both the shepherd and the housewife search until what they have lost is found. There is much rejoicing in finding what has been lost since it represents restoration of the relationship with God. The last of the three parables in this series is the longest in the Gospels and the most familiar. In the story of the prodigal son, Luke draws a stark contrast between the merciful, loving father and the angry, self-absorbed elder brother. We may compare ourselves at times to all three characters. Like the younger son in the parable, we at times have moved away from God depending on ourselves. We then found ourselves feeding on the leftovers. Recognition, money, other people, food, drink, and unhealthy lifestyles. Then at some point, we come to our senses, like the younger son, declare our guilt, and ask for forgiveness, and try again. That is the nature of conversion. It happens again and again, and thank God for that. Notice the vision this parable holds of God's delight in our return. The son, the younger son, hoped for mere reconciliation. Look what he got, a full restoration of the relationship and actions that spoke more loudly and clearly than any words of forgiveness. His father ran to meet him. In ancient Palestine, it was regarded as a loss of dignity for a grown man to run. The son was given a robe usually reserved for the most important guest. He was given the signet ring, meaning that he could again act in the name of his father. And then a costly banquet of a calf carefully fed for slaughter on a very special occasion. Every image signifies celebration of new life. That is the prodigal, lavish, or wasteful nature of God's love. 
I realize as I study this that I need to reflect more often on the truth that God thinks of me as worthy and a delight. Let's make that a resolution of the study of this parable, to reclaim our true identity, to remember who we are, that God has chosen us with our faults, and to call to mind often God's lavish love. The last parable we'll discuss today is the rich man and Lazarus. We could call it what's in a name. Luke does not name the rich man, the character that his readers consider blessed by God. But Luke does name the poor, hungry, weeping beggar. Luke calls him Lazarus, meaning God is my help. The rich man may appear to have everything, but he is anonymous. Lazarus has nothing and is dependent solely on God, but he has a name. In the end, the rich man has nothing. Lazarus has everything. We saw this exact theme in the Beatitudes. Blessed is Lazarus because he is poor, hungry, and grieving. The parable is addressed to the Pharisees. They saw the rich man's prosperity as a sign of God's blessing, falling back on Deuteronomy 28, verse 4, as proof. Blessed be the fruit of your womb, the produce of your soil, and the offspring of your livestock, the issue of your herds, and the young of your flocks. But at the same time, being hypocrites, they ignored Deuteronomy 14, 28 and 29, which called for them to share their bounty with the community so that those who have less, particularly the aliens, orphans, and widows, may have food. Verse 29 concludes that if this bounty is shared, the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake. The disagreement between Jesus and the Pharisees on this point leads Jesus to preach the parable. Every phrase in the description of the rich man adds to our understanding of his life of luxury. Robes of purple and fine linen describe the high priest's robes, the highest priced clothing available. The word used for feasting means that the man ate gourmet food, exotic, costly food every single day. Food in these days was, was eaten with the hands, and in very wealthy houses, they would use hunks of bread, of thick bread, to clean the grease off their hands and then throw the bread away. Lazarus was waiting for those pieces of bread. The rich man is a disgusting symbol of decadent self-indulgence. But Luke seems to accuse the rich man of an even graver fault ignoring Lazarus. The rich man may have thought of the poor, but probably much like us, he thought of them in the abstract, like a global problem. Luke, always preferring the poor, shows them as the real people they are. They have names, and they live practically at our doorstep. Here in Arkansas and in surrounding states, the poor have become much more real to us after the shocking aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Could the rich man's worst sin be that he just didn't notice Lazarus? The parable sends us a terrible warning. Let's conclude by looking at three themes from today's study. Humility, 
Love of Money versus Love of God, and The High Cost of Discipleship. The theme of humility is most obviously stated in the parable of the banquet in chapter 14, where we read, The first shall be last. Now I ask you, who wants to be last? We love to quote the words of the parable, but I admit it, I have a hard time being last. Jesus was humble, and don't forget, human. He knew his strengths, he struggled, but resisted becoming self-absorbed. Always his focus was serving others, using his strength, talents, and all that his Father had put at his disposal. True humility is not feeling bad about yourself or having a low opinion of yourself. True humility frees us from being preoccupied with ourselves. When I see myself as I truly am, I know that I am first a child of God. When I can see that, I don't focus as much on my faults and failings, and I don't need so much approval and praise for my good points. True humility is a way for us to stay in balance, knowing that God has made us very good, but never forgetting that we are nothing without God. A second theme concerns money. The famous words, you cannot serve God and mammon, are found in the parable of the rich man and the steward. But this theme runs through most of today's lesson and Luke's gospel. Dolores Curran, a popular and practical Catholic writer, talks about our creed of consumerism in the United States. She tells of a woman in her parenting group who said, um, we're not getting along very well in our family, so we're thinking of buying a camper van. Camper ads, after all, promise happy families. The woman's statement is truly a creedal statement. It tells what she is putting her trust in, a camper van. A creed says what we believe in or what we give our hearts to. We recite a creed every time we go to Mass. We say, I believe in or I give my heart to God, the Father, the Almighty, and so on. I encourage you to use the creed at Mass as a way of checking what you're really giving your heart to. Compare the I believes to a list of what you really give your time, attention, and energy, and emotion to. And it can be a very startling discovery. The late Mother Teresa, our Catholic bishops, social activists Dorothy Day and Gandhi, the popes, all have spoken out against consumerism. In Centissimus Honest, Pope John Paul II wrote, It is not wrong to want to live better. What is wrong is a style of life which wants to have more, not in order to be more, but in order to spend life in enjoyment as an end in itself. He also said that the greatest cost of consumerism is that it is embraced to fill an emptiness that can only be filled by a loving relationship with God. We don't have to be lavish consumers to serve money over God, and I see myself as an example. I don't spend a lot. I don't acquire a lot. I don't waste a lot, but I don't have a good attitude toward money either. Instead, I have a great fear of not having enough money. I stay anxious about money, whether I'm spending it or not. And in that sense, 
I am just as out of balance in placing my trust as the worst shopaholic is. Put very simply, there is nothing wrong with having money or having things. The problems come when we think we need things God has made more than we need God. When we don't share, when we waste and use more than our share of resources, and when we cling to our possessions for security. The third theme is the cost of discipleship. Once we've joined Jesus on the road to Jerusalem, it is going to be a demanding journey. We must share Jesus' attitude of total self-giving, placing the lives of others ahead of our own. I think first of my parents as examples of this, but I know many other selfless people. And remember, in a spirit of humility, that you as parents, adult children, friends, co-workers, volunteers, and neighbors do the very same thing and do it well. How many of you in middle age now are helping care for an elderly parent or relative? I am sure all of you know what it means to put another person's life before your own. In chapter 14, verses 25 to 33, Jesus makes harsh demands of his followers. These can be seen as a symbol of the commitment that every follower of Jesus should be prepared to live. These demands state the ideal, probably not the norm, not then, not now. But Luke is saying that as Christians, we must center our lives on Jesus, learn his life, reflect on his suffering, and believe that it led to a brand new kind of life in the resurrection. Everything else we own or do or experience, even family, says Luke, is relative. Does that sound too depressing? The late William Barclay, world-renowned Bible scholar, cheers us with his words about parables and discipleship. We must always remember, he says, that Jesus thought of the kingdom in terms of a feast. A gloomy Christian is a contradiction in terms. There is no healthy pleasure which is forbidden to a Christian, for a Christian is like a man who is forever at a wedding feast. So with Jesus as our companion, let's continue on the journey and keep celebrating the feast. <music>